And, you know, I found all this out in due diligence. That's the main thing. When you make an offer on land or an investment property and you have to find out, is this conducive to short-term rentals? You know, the size of the property, the style, all of that. You want to go sit down and talk to the planning department, the health department, the whatever, the more intricate it is in bigger cities and make sure that you're not going to get shot down on stage six of investing all this money. Allie Crook is a licensed realtor and entrepreneur in Atlanta who owns multiple tiny homes and tiny homes in every sense of the word. They're tiny, but they're also full homes and they kind of sit in that vacation rental space. Ali got her BA in 2013 in international affairs from the University of Georgia. She is an avid dogs fan. And in 2018, she graduated with a master's of heritage preservation degree with an emphasis in historic preservation from Georgia State University. During her studies at GSU, she worked all around the Atlanta metro area, nominating buildings and districts to the National Register of Historic Places. It was during this time she developed her love for the histories, homes, the people in Atlanta's in-town neighborhoods. Ali has recently won awards as a top-performing Atlanta Realtors Association top producer two years in a row, as well as the ERA Real Estate Circle of Honor also two years in a row. I've met Ali at multiple real estate investor events around the country, and we kind of share a love of understanding the fundamentals, what makes a successful investment, and how to build a solid real estate portfolio on those fundamentals. So today we'll be talking about the basics, how to find an agent, what makes a great agent, and what fueled Ali's desire to build tiny homes, as well as what that journey has been like. So Ali, welcome to the show, and thank you for being one of my very first guests. Yes, thank you, Etty, and congratulations on getting this off the ground. I'm super excited. We talked about this in Tampa in December, and I am honored you reached out to me to be a part of this. Absolutely. So tell me about the moment you're closing on the loan for the tiny houses. What what was that like? Yeah, so I had not done a real estate investment prior to closing on the land to buy the tiny homes. I was a realtor for about three years before I started realizing I need to get into the investor game. And summer of 2021, I stumbled into a beautiful situation through a TikTok that led me to a group of really awesome real estate investors who do things a little unconventionally, meaning They use private money or seller finance, things like that, to fund deals that normally wouldn't be touched by an institutional lender. So I met Lisa Englehart through her TikTok about her teeny home program, bought the program, and I joined her mastermind. That really gave me the motivation to go out and find a lot to do a build and turn that into a short-term rental. So September, 2021, I closed on two acres, which are deeded separately to one acre parcels. One I was able to buy with cash and the other I bought with seller financing. So it was very nerve wracking because I had not done any construction prior to buying this lot. I had remodeled a bathroom. And in the sense I say I remodeled the bathroom, I honestly I ripped up the floor myself, got exhausted, then hired a contractor to put the towel back in. So um, yeah, I don't know. I was very naive, but very well equipped with experts in the field through networking. So thankfully, I where I met you at Dealmaker in Richmond, Virginia, hosted by Jim Ingersoll, I met business partner and Michael Hicks. I met a private lender and I met a mentor in Lisa. 
And then from there, I've been exposed to this awesome group of people that go to all these events all over the country and internationally. Next month, I'm getting on the Investor Addicts Cruise that'll go to several different countries. And it's seven days of nonstop collaboration, networking, and courses. So I'm really excited about it. That's awesome. So it sounds like the tiny houses themselves are like, they're made from like a repurposed 40-inch shipping container. Is that is that right? So what we did is the tiny houses themselves are stick-built. So they were wooden frame, stick and post foundations. So we sunk nine columns per house. They are 20 feet by 20 feet with a wooden frame floor. And then they are 20 feet tall on one side and 13 feet tall on the other side. So they have a sloped contemporary roof. We built them all in site with framers. And then from there, they wrapped the house and did the siding, did all that sort of thing. But the shipping container component that you're referring to is our central amenity area. This was kind of a nod to Michael Hicks. He has a background in building unique properties. So he has three shipping container homes and tree houses and A-frames and all kinds of just really cool out-of-the-box properties that he and his wife have developed over the years that are just fabulously successful in the short-term rental space. So we were permitted in Dahlonega, where my short-term rentals are located, which is about an hour and a half north of Atlanta. Lumpkin County, the unincorporated part of Dahlonega, allowed me to do two structures per acre. And that is why I ended up having to stick build houses, which I could have done shipping containers, but I kind of liked the build ground up for financing purposes. And then we had all this extra space in between the four houses. So we brought in a 40 foot shipping container that I bought from Mike and he connected me with a welder that cut a 20 foot section out of the side of it. And so we have a really nice pass through area for people to sit under the container for like shelter. We have an indoor outdoor seating area with a dining table. And then we have a 40 foot deck that's built next to the table or the, excuse me, the container that has a Blackstone grill and a prep station. And we've got games up there and those cute retro looking wheelie coolers and all that. So that when we have groups that come into the tiny homes, we rent on an individual basis and all four at the same time. So we've had everything from graduation parties to post wedding ceremonies and family reunions at the huddle. And that's what we've named it is the huddle is the central amenity area. And my business is called Huddle at Crooked Creek LLC because there is a creek that runs on the property. There's a really beautiful spring that pops up. We're in the mountains and it flows through the property and it didn't have a name. And my last name is Crooks. We named it Crooked Creek. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been in business. This is a fun random story, but I've been in business since October of 2022. That's when we got our certificate of occupancy, our short-term rental permits, and our tourist accommodation permit. We have to kind of behave like a hotel based on the local county ordinances. And for the first time since we've been open, I got a call the other day from somebody looking for the Huddle House, which... You are not native to the South, but the Huddle House is kind of a more Southern version of Waffle House. And a lot of people will call the tiny homes Huddle Homes or Huddle Houses. And I'm like, you know what? It's fine. I grew up going to the Huddle House here in Snellville, Georgia. So (laughs) it kind of tickled me, but I'm shocked that it's only happened once, to be honest. So what was the inspiration for the tiny houses? Because most people, they're buying their first investment property and they're thinking three-bedroom, two-bathroom, single-family house, bog standard easiest way possible. What was the inspiration for the tiny houses? Was it just like scrolling through TikTok and seeing Lisa's content? 
Uh, yes and no. So I am a self-employed realtor. And anybody that's gone through the mortgage application process knows that you have to be able to document your income, your debt, and your credit. And I didn't have a lot of debt. I had great credit, but my income on paper did not look super strong because I was a business owner. And it's just a whole complicated thing that requires a lot of extra red tape when you are self-employed versus being a W-2 employee of a big corporation because our income is not static. So some months it's feast and some months it's famine. So I talked to a good lender friend of mine that helps me with my clients here in Atlanta. And she said, you know, we can pre-qualify you for this amount. And I looked at what was available at X amount. I don't even remember what it was. And it was just not gonna be conducive to cash flow. I wanted something that would, you know, one, provide an awesome experience and two, be something that was feasible. I didn't want to spend a ton of money getting into a mortgage and then not have anything left over to do a rehab or something like that. So I started looking around and, you know, a lot of people get the idea of, oh, I'm going to buy land and plop a tiny house on it or a yurt or a geodesic dome or all these different things. And there's a lot of really cool stuff out there that does it very well on the different short-term rental platforms. But you have to look at the local zoning codes to see what they're going to permit. So I chose to look in the Dahlonega market because my sister and brother-in-law have a very successful business there called Spirits Tavern. It's a bar and grill on the square, and they've been operational for a decade this year. So very excited for them. And they also had um, some short-term rentals. So I kind of knew from the insider's edge of what that involved dealing with the local government. So from my historic preservation days, I knew how to dig through the planning documents and I went onto the Lumpkin County planning website and found a guideline that kind of outlined tiny homes and shipping container homes and things like that, that their planning department had put out there for developers. So there was no minimum square footage. That's the number one thing that Lisa Inglehart will teach you if you're getting into tiny homes. And a lot of people don't think about that's the biggest thing. A lot of counties, especially here in the Atlanta metro area, they have a minimum square footage of 1,600, 1,800, 2,200 square feet because they want you to build a three-bedroom, four-bedroom home. They don't want a little tiny thing for conformity purposes. So Delonica said, no, we don't care. You can build as small as you want. So that right there was kind of like adding up. And I had talked to a couple of manufacturers of tiny homes on wheels and things like that. And those are not truly real estate. Those are really RVs. Those are registered with the Department of Motor Vehicles. They're kind of more like a modular mobile trailer home. Those are all used interchangeably. And they don't appreciate the same way that real property does that's affixed and built on the ground. So I was like, okay, this is what I've got to do. I've got to figure out how to build one of these. And when I found Lisa in July of 2021 scrolling through TikTok, I just was looking at hashtag tiny house. And she's the sweetest lady. She's got the greatest Southern accent. She's like, hey, y'all, I'm Lisa. I build tiny homes on permanent foundations. You can too. You should follow me and learn more. So I did. I followed her for about a month. And then I got this really great drip campaign email from her that included a bunch of details about her program. It was somewhere around $500. And I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to miss that $500. And this, this will be a good connection. So and I was so right. <laughs> I bought the program about one o'clock in the morning. And the next morning, maybe 9am or so Lisa's calling me It's like, Hey, thanks so much for buying the program. And um, who are you? And, you know, asking me all these questions, because so far, when she had started her program, she had connected with people she knew personally through the real estate investor networks. 
Um, And I was kind of the first person to fall into the funnel. So then from there, the inspiration really took off. She had a lot of building plans. I took one of her plans, kind of redrew it and designed it. Then I came to Dealmaker to hear her speak. And I met Michael Hicks. And the rest is history. So it was it was really, really lucky. Just like hit a vein of gold. <laughs> so it sounded like you kind of had the sense of you definitely wanted to do a tiny house because of the financing component to it. But then you also had that insight of I can't just go buy a container or a trailer park and plop it on the ground because it's not going to appreciate. It's going to appreciate like a car, which doesn't appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are so many investors out there that do modular homes and trailer parks and things like that, that do incredibly well. But in the short term rental space, you want something that's unique Mm -hmm. and something that's new and modern really, really performs well. Short-term rentals, it's no secret, perform better than long-term rentals. Yes, they're they're more involved. They're not necessarily passive income. But as a realtor at ERA Foster & Bond here in Atlanta, we have a property management arm of our business. And my work best friend is the property manager. And listening to her talk about the insane things that long-term tenants do really convinced me, I don't want to do that. I would love to have short-term guests that come that you know stay for a couple days and they have a great time and then people that they pay the cleaning fee and I have a beautiful cleaning team of people that absolutely have made this business a success that you know they come in they take care of everything and we have to do periodic maintenance and restocks and things like that but I know exactly where I'm at with the properties whereas I've had friends that will rent a property and they'll get it back and the dishwasher is missing true story. Or my neighbor rented her house to a family that had a bunch of kids. And when she got the property back in her possession, the quartz countertops were broken. Quartz countertops were broken. Yes. yes. I have no idea. I am still confused. And this was several years ago. And I mean, I literally wake up in the middle of the night and we're like, quartz countertops were broken, you know? So that sort of thing is of no interest to me. In Georgia, you know, you have to disclose. We're a buyer beware state. So disclose, disclose, disclose is the name of the game. If you go to any of my short-term rental listings, it says at the bottom, owners hold real estate license in Georgia because I'm majority owner. My mom is part owner. She retired from teaching in the beginning of 2022, and she got her real estate license to help me with my residential real estate sales business. And so, you know, People know nobody on the consumer side has ever asked like, hey, what does this mean? But it it kind of is there to protect us so that there's never an argument of tenancy agreement. You know, nobody's entering into a long-term rental because we're a hotel. We've got all of our licenses on the walls and all four of the tiny homes you come in. We've got our health score, our short-term rental permit, our tourist accommodation permit. And we have to pay for those annually and pay sales tax just like any other hotel and go through health inspections, which I am perfectly fine with because I'm going to make sure that we are at the top of the line for everything, experience, cleanliness, location. We're only 10 minutes from Dahlonega, which is a really great tourist town. We've got 14 wineries in Lumpkin County. We were named in Condé Nast, Southern Living, all sorts of different travel blogs for food, wine, and the Christmas scene, we've had a couple of Hallmark movies filmed. So Christmas does really, really well in our market. Lots of people come to see the cute lights and go shopping at the little boutique stores and things like that. So, so it's like the Lenica is where you should go if you want to get your Hallmark 
fix. You want to? Yes, exactly. Exactly. I was totally against the Hallmark movies until about five years ago. And then my cousin converted me. And now I'm like, yes, I can melt my brain and watch this cute trash. So <laughs> I do love like around the holiday seasons when the Hallmark uh, movies start to air. I just love like sitting in my like little rocking chair with like a little drink and like cool. Yeah. I personally enjoy it. I love a good home. Yeah, no, I do too. I was like in denial about it for a long time, but I will now accept it. And having the tiny houses and being able to decorate them for Christmas was like one of the best experiences, buying the Christmas trees and getting all the little decor. I was behind the curve this year and I just took everything down on Wednesday and I was so sad, but you know, it's only like 10 more months until we put it on back up. <laughs> So like your verse, so this is their four tiny houses are the first kind of official investment, real estate investment you made. Yes. And with your first big investment, you're doing a joint venture. You have an, right. an agreement. It's in an LLC. You've got multiple partners. You're talking about pouring concrete, hanging sheet rug, doing framing, going through multiple inspections, a private loan. This is the first deal ever you've done. Where yeah. did sophistication come from to like take all of these like really sophisticated elements and put them together on your first deal? Like how did that, where did that sophistication come from? Um, so it was kind of a step-by-step -step thing. When I started, I thought, okay, I can pay for, you know, this lot and I can sell or finance the other lot. So that was step one. And then my mom is retiring and says, yeah, I'll join you on this and I'll invest some money. So I'm thinking, okay, with her money, we've got enough for part of the building package. And then I met Mike and we started talking and, you know, there's a lot of very restrictive guidelines around lending out of an IRA, which is where a lot of real estate investors get their foot in the door. And so he came to see the project because he's basically in my backyard. He lives just south of Chattanooga in Rossville, Georgia. And he and his wife rode down to see the property and meet me at my sister's restaurant and just to get to know each other. And at first we were talking about them lending on the property, but then he said, you know, I can't be involved if I'm the lender. And I think that for both of us would be more beneficial for me to kind of act in the general contractor capacity. So that's where we entered into a joint venture agreement that has turned into an equity partnership Sorry to interrupt, but I just want to clarify for anybody who's listening and doesn't quite understand why he couldn't be involved. When you're lending out of an IRA, there's really strict guidelines about the investment you make, and the IRA rules really require that it's a passive investment. So if he lended out of his IRA and then turned up to like help Ali like hang sheet rock or like point out dimensions, it would be like he was involved and it would be a violation of the lending rules. No, thank you for clarifying that because that is a huge thing that you can't lend to direct descendants and children, grandchildren, parents. So my mom, hers was not an IRA investment. Hers was just an active capital. I'm not even exactly sure. We have a full-time bookkeeper and a CPA that helps us keep track of all of this. Hey, quick reminder, all the content you hear on the podcast and in the Fireplace community are all for your entertainment and education only. It is not financial advice. Please get advice from a competent financial professional, especially if you need expert help for your very specific situation. Okay, on to the episode. So we ended up moving forward with the partnership, breaking ground in January because it took from September until the end of December to get all the soil analysis, apply for the septic permits, apply for drilling the new well, all of that. 
And then when we tore down the trailer that was on the seller finance side, that's why the seller of this land was willing to do that deal that way. It was one owner that owned each parcel. And I really was interested in only the lot when I went to look at the property. But my mom was like, you know, you really should go after both because then you can kind of control what's happening on the other half of this one piece of property that clearly goes together. You had said it was two acres, but they deeded separately. Correct. Yes. So the previous owner had subdivided it. Aha. Okay. Right down the middle. And thank goodness they did, because that was a technicality in the local guidelines that because the property was subdivided prior to a certain date in 2010, I was allowed to have two residential dwellings per acre instead of just one. So that was just like a sign of luck. Like this is what's meant to happen. And, you know, I found all this out in due diligence. That's the main thing. When you make an offer on land or an investment property and you have to find out is this conducive to short-term rentals, you know, the size of the property, the style, all of that. You want to go sit down and talk to the planning department, the health department, the whatever, the more intricate it is in bigger cities, and make sure that you're not going to get shot down on stage six of investing all this money. So I knew I had a meeting with the planning director, the building inspector, the health department director, and I thought out said, I want to build this. And I showed them a picture of my weird polygon drawing and said, I want to build four of them. Is this okay? And they were like, yeah, sure. So that really, you know, solidified the plan. But back to the business formation, we formed the LLC. I guess it's a joint partnership agreement, operating agreement that an attorney drew up for my mom and I who owned the company. And then a joint venture agreement between my company and Mike's company. And then from there, we had all of that lined up. We had all the permits. We had all of the, you know, building plans and illustrations and data on the local area, other short-term rentals that perform really well, local amenities, some information from the Chamber of Commerce to kind of show like, why are people coming in and out of this area? And I had all that with DealMaker the second time I went, pretty sure we saw each other there. And I handed that all over to a private lender. And she was like, okay, I think I might be able to to help you here. And she really took a chance on me. And I'm very grateful for that because I had not done any real estate investing. I didn't have anything else to point to other than I owned half of the property free and clear. So when she came in as a private lender, she wasn't able to be involved in the project. She never saw it, did anything other than lend money directly to my LLC for an 18-month interest-only term. So I paid her two points and 8%, and we closed in April of 2022 on that loan because at that point, our funds that my mom and I had personally had kind of dried up. And her money came in to finish out the build. So, you know, we had a lumber package, all of the labor, the siding. I mean, all of those were just really major expenses. And I was able to get finished to the point that we got our certificate of occupancy in September. And that September 2022 was really when the market really started shifting and the resale market, everything started slowing down a lot because we had come through these amazing months of like two and a half percent. 15-year fixed mortgages, you know, I was making multiple offers for clients, 100,000 over asking. That's when people were willing to name their child after the seller to get the house. And literally, that's the stuff was happening in Atlanta. It was absolutely insane. Did not enjoy that period at all. But it was a very good, profitable time for me as a realtor. So that, that worked out really nicely. That had that income coming in. Then I went to a local bank 
through um, a relationship I had made with a lender here in Atlanta, and they were willing to refinance the whole deal. So they bought out the private lender and the seller finance. So I currently have one commercial mortgage. It's a five-year adjustable rate mortgage. So that will come to maturity in September of 2027. That is worth 50% of the appraised value in September. So we have a lot of equity in this project. So that's when the challenge now is balancing the expenses to try to get to cash flow, which so far has been fine. We're paying the bills. It's just there's nothing extra yet. So we would love to tap into that equity to you know, then get some of the cash flow and then look for the next build site because this has been very fulfilling. I feel like everybody is very happy with where we are with the project, whether that be a guest or a past investor. So, you know, it's just a matter of time before we can find the next set of components to to do it again. Quick one. If you are listening to this episode and you have questions about things that Ali's saying, for example, what does it mean to put down 2.78%? What is a hard money loan? What's a private money loan? What is the difference between those two things? What does it mean to lend out of an IRA? What are the rules around that? How might you access some of these sorts of investors, investments, etc.? come down to Fireplace. Join us in Fireplace. Those are the kinds of things that we talk about, especially when we have an interview that is technical or goes into some of the nitty gritties of deals within real estate investing. You can bring your questions over to Fireplace when we have our calls and those are the sorts of things we talk about. So you can check that out at ourfirsthouse.org and you can join us in Fireplace. Okay, back to the episode. That's awesome. And I think it kind of highlights kind of the, a couple of different areas of this kind of real estate investing journey, right? You've done all this work to put all of these incredible components together. The lender came together, the LLC came together, the building came together, the financing came together, the refinancing comes together. But there's still like a sacrificial part of, hey, we're not eating our seeds yet. We're going to keep investing back into the business and keep trying to grow the business. We're not ready to kind of like lay back and just kind of eat whatever proceeds we're getting from the, the properties. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's not totally just like a passive income source yet. It will be. Absolutely. It's just, you know, this was the first stepping stone. My second project in real estate investing was due to the relationships that I had established with the tiny home build. I was able to secure a private lender that lent me the down payment to do a hard money loan on a purchase and a flip. So actually the house directly across the street from where I live was owned by good family friends that I've known almost my entire life. And they had this massive house, 5,600 square feet that needed a lot of cosmetic repair, some systemic, you know, things, but it was in excellent shape on the exterior and everything on the inside needed an overhaul. So I was able to go in, purchase the house, close on that with both the private money lender and the hard money lender. And for people that don't understand the difference, hard money is an institutional loan that is usually some sort of accredited investor that's raised a lot of money that lends out at, you know, flat rates if the deal makes sense. 
meaning the after repair value is, you know, so much more than the purchase plus the repairs. So they don't want to lend on anything that costs more than 70% of the after repair value by the time you purchase the house and do the repairs. And then to get in to the deal, so you have some skin in the game, you have to put down a down payment. And that could be anywhere from 10 to 30% of the purchase price. And then they will usually lend 100% of those rehab costs in construction draws. So you have to have some money in the upfront to get started on construction. And then you have a series of inspections as you go to ensure that you're actually spending money on luxury vinyl plank and appliances and not jutting off the Bora Bora you know, for accountability purposes to the investors. So that worked out really well because we were able to close on that in July of 2022 and a property sold November 30th. So it was extremely stressful because it was my first time. It's right across the street from me. So I never got to stop looking at it or being involved, but we have wonderful new neighbors and everybody got paid back and are happy with me. So, you know, it was also during pretty decent market shift. The appraiser kind of shot me down a couple of times. So, you know, the, the proceeds were not exactly what I was hoping, but not a loss. So I consider that a win and a notch in the belt for project number two. It's so hilarious when like real estate investors, we like make all those numbers and we're like estimated ARV and we make our fancy decks and then shop them around. And then when it comes time for like the appraisal, you're like holding your breath, crossing your fingers, looking around being like, God, please just let us appraiser think that my numbers make sense. or like think that like the house is worth what I think it's worth. Yeah. I'm waiting for like the appraisal to come back. It's the worst. Yeah. The, so like my broker in real estate, Rusty Willis, I was extremely lucky when I finished my program to get my license. I went to the Atlanta Realtors career night and there was probably 30 different brokerages in the room. And I promised myself, talk to everyone, hear them out, go on as many interviews as you can. Because when you're an agent, the broker is like who you hire. It's not the other way around. It's not like a job interview. So you're looking for a broker that's going to offer you the most in terms of support, guidance, training, all of those things. And a lot of the big box brokers will nickel and dime you. You know, you'll join and they'll charge you a desk fee and then they'll charge you for the post-license continuing education credits. And then, you know, they do all kinds of stuff where my broker likes to call it play realtor, where you have a chili cook-off or whatever. But you're not out actively growing your business and selling real estate and helping people in the real estate market. So I was very lucky. I met Rusty Willis and his partner, David Wren, who own my brokerage. And from day one, you know, I was like, okay, you got to listen to these people. They know what they're doing. And I was super fortunate. Two weeks into having my license, a very good friend of mine was like, yeah, I kind of don't love my apartment. Can we go look at something? And we closed two weeks later. So that's pretty unprecedented. I was able to close a deal within like a month of having my real estate license. From there, you know, you, you really get a sense of what's happening in the market from the investor side. So, you know, the appraisers can be awesome or they can break you. And I knew going in that if I got a certain type of loan, that could really, you know, cut the deal down. And it did. If I had been in the market the year prior, I would have probably hit the number that I was thinking. But, you know, it's fine. And and the thing is, what I was trying to get at earlier is my broker always says, 
the price and the value of a property is what the market brings it. So my buyer came to look at the house across the street. He offered me, you know, 10,000 over asking price because I was willing to pay 18,000 in closing costs, mm. which to me, I was like, yeah, let's go. That's a good deal. And then the appraiser was like, nah, this isn't worth that. And she cut us off by $20,000. So yeah, we were under contract at 610 and she came back at 590. And that's like, okay, here's a buyer wants to buy here's a house that sold for this you know and she used comps that were out of the school district different zip code different city so there's a lot of elements it doesn't matter you can plan for years and still to say that that appraiser that walked through and I live in this house and that house is right there like I'm looking out my office window and I can see it she was in and out so fast I didn't even know she was there you know, so for that person to say this is worth 20000 less, you know, it is what it is. It was oh. a VA loan. There's nothing you can do unless mm -hmm. you want to be like, no, I'm not going to sell you the house or you have to pay this price. And they walk away and then you sit there for another four months. And that's to nobody's benefit. So, you know, you have to know when to get in and get out. And that comes with experience. If I hadn't been an agent, I would have probably been like, oh, no, I'm getting ripped off. I've got to wait, you know stuff like that so well you being an agent made you go okay like it's 20k less but this is one that I think it makes sense to move on rather than waiting for like the next yeah five. yeah exactly because this isn't the end all be all there's always another deal out there so if you pay everybody off you get their money out and personally and selfishly these people seem like really sweet people and they are so I was like I want them to be my neighbors <laughs> it was a first-time home buyer and a veteran so you know it's like this man has served his country. His wife is lovely. I want, you know, them to have the house. And so that I feel like was a big learning curve in about a 24 hour period, you know, getting that appraisal back and getting the kick in the gut. But, you know, it's, it's just part of the, the deal. And if you can get past that, I feel like you can continue and, and do the next deal. And then one of these days will be like the people we see at these seminars that have sold a thousand houses and, you know, have all the stories. You know, it's interesting. I feel like in real estate and in all businesses, really, knowing how to talk your ego down is such a huge thing. And that's exactly what you did in this scenario, right? You go, okay, it's 20K less. I can like stump and kick, but then there's also, it's also worth like taking myself out on a walk and being like, right, I understand that it's not what I want. But at the same time, there's all of these other benefits that are beyond the price that makes it sensible to like still go forward with the deal. Like they're great right. people that live right next to me. This is a veteran who has served the country. Like there's all of this other like great reasons mm -hmm. to still to this. And like kind of you you kind of talk your ego down a little bit and go, let's be, let's be sensible. Yeah. 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 No, it's definitely a challenge. Another thing that, you know, the flip versus a short-term rental property, with a short-term rental property, you want it to be special. You want it to have the the cutest cabinets and the Bluetooth speaker above the shower and the extra comfy beds and all the decor. With a flip, it might not be in your best interest to have a $6,000 KitchenAid range. And it might not be in your best interest to have waterfall quartz countertops. But when you are too invested, it's hard to stop. Mm. And full disclosure, the $6,000 range was brand new and was sold to me by a friend for 1200 so I'm still very proud of that and my neighbors have a very beautiful kitchen but there was definitely points where I probably should have stopped mm. and I'm not sure that I got the return on investment 
So, you know, that that's also a skill that's learned over time. You know, if I wanted to go into the kitchen remodeling business, this was a great showcase piece, but that is not the goal. So that's another thing that I took away from this project. So in 2021, you had worked with two investors as an agent, and you kind of started to think about making the leap from being an agent, which is a very specific set of skills, to being yeah. an investor. And I want to read you a quote, and you're familiar with this quote. It's, it's from your website. It says, Ali is extremely knowledgeable on the real estate business in Atlanta. She listens to what her clients are looking for and does everything she can to arm her clients with the best possible offer. Not to mention she's extremely friendly and doesn't mind asking the hard questions to other agents in a professional manner. So obviously you're a great agent. What separates a good agent for investors from a less good one? The short answer is brutal honesty. So I've had a a license for five years and I've mostly sold properties to sphere of influence, which means friends, family, coworkers, people that know you personally. And the best way to build any business anywhere, especially real estate, is through relationships and trust. So my clients regularly accuse me of, do you actually want me to buy something? Because I walk into a property and immediately point out the things that are going to come up in an inspection or be a problem. And having the historic preservation background, I know a little bit about building materials. I can point out, you know, this is good. This is bad. This is what an inspector is going to say. But then, you know, a contractor might say something different. And giving a buyer, and and most of my business has been buyers up until this year. Now that the market has shifted, of course, I'm sitting here with three listings and I'm begging my buyers to run out and look at them. But, you know, just having the foresight to point those out, instead of letting somebody go down the road of spending a lot of money on a home inspection and getting all excited to buy something that then has this Band-Aid problem then, you know, it it really does work out for you in the long run. It might take a little bit longer, but those people are going to come back to you with every single question about, hey, I saw a bug in my house today. What should I do? You know, everything from that simple to, I think I want to buy land and build on it myself. What should I do? Having, you know, conversations with people that then lead to listings and lead to long-term relationships. So I think that that is what really sets a lot of agents apart because, you know, if you're just in it for this sale and then the next sale, you're not going to be able to build something that's sustainable. And, you know, I love what I do. I love it when people reach out to me and ask me questions about things that are like not even really real estate related because they know that they trust me and I I just enjoy being helpful. And that's what's been really special about the real estate investors that we've met through. There's always somebody there that's willing to help, which is just phenomenal. And I found that in the brokerage side as well. I've got just a really awesome team of realtors that work at ERA Foster and Bond. My broker, his partner, David, our office manager, our technology guys. I mean, they're just all fantastic. And I don't think that that's typical in all industries. And I'm very grateful for it. So what are some things people looking for an investor-friendly agent should know or should ask about? So number one, having an agent that is an investor herself is very helpful, I would say, because we know what it is that you're going through. Um, The internal struggle of, am I doing the right thing? Is this what I want to do? 
to having the resources. So not all agents are going to know to go to certain websites to run numbers. The way that I run a market analysis, um, a lot of times is a little bit different than certain agents. I do have a lot of experience and just learning a market very quickly because of my experience as an agent in the relocation sphere. When I first got into real estate, I took a lot of relocation clients through third-party services like Brookfield Global Relocation Services. Home Story was a partner with like Chase, Regions Bank, USAA. So I'd have people coming in from literally like Canada or the other side of the country that knew nothing about Ackworth. And that's like an hour and 10 minutes away from where I'm sitting. So I'd have to learn about the school districts and the local amenities and the county systems and all of that. Then look at the market analysis side of things. Like what is the house worth? What I think it will be worth, you know, how does it compare to other like properties in the area? And then from the investor perspective, you have to look at, are you going to rent it? Are you going to flip it? Are you going to hold it and, you know, tap dance on it for 10 years and then sell it, you know, and, I'm starting to understand a tiny bit more about commercial real estate just through private research and things like that. The other day I was like, why are there so many car washes? And I listened to this great podcast that was talking about car wash investors don't really expect the car wash to pull in as much revenue as the appreciation of the lot it's sitting on because they're easy to build and easy to tear down. And they're almost always at a really great four-way intersection. And I was like, that's so true. Because like here in my little town in Snuggle, got like six brand new car washes. I'm like, this is stupid, but they're in great locations. So in 10 years, if somebody wants to turn it into whatever the next thing is, they've got that real estate. So, but yeah, I, I would say working with people that know a little bit about seller finance is important. Subject to is the buzzword currently. I personally have not done anything in subject to, but I know people that have. So connecting them with the correct people or the correct attorneys can be super beneficial. For me, when I'm working with an agent on an investment property, it's always really helpful to me to know that this is somebody who has their own investment properties and understands what I'm looking for. Because I've worked with non-investor friendly agents before and it just, it didn't work out. Like I had to just kind of say, this isn't working out. Thank you so much. And, you know, yeah. one, because they are looking at it from a perspective of this is such a lovely house and so beautiful. And, you know, why wouldn't you right. want it? And I'm looking at different person of like, this thing is not going to pay the rent. It's not going to pay the mortgage. Right. Or, oh, this isn't a great school district. That's fantastic, but it's not going to cash flow. And so the trade-offs yeah. I make at, at this stage of my real estate journey is it has to cash flow. I can't hold it in the hopes that it's going to appreciate 10 years from now. It needs to be making money today. Mm-hmm. And working with people who don't understand that can be a little bit frustrating. And even working with people who don't have an opinion that is the worst. It's just, I, <laughs> they had this um, on a deal I was trying to like make happen here where I would ask the agent, so what do you think about this property? And it'd be like very non-committal, very like, it's kind of okay. Well, it depends on what you're looking for. That's not what I'm asking. Oh, wow. Yeah. Opinion on if this is something I should buy or not. And then when I would make a decision around, you know what, I think I'm not going to go for that property. They would say, oh yeah, that's a good idea because of all of these reasons why it's a terrible idea to have bought that house. Why didn't you tell right. me you dollars right. on an inspection on the house? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm very conscious of that because inspections are expensive and why waste that seller's time? You know, I try to be conscientious of the other side too, because being a realtor and knowing what it's like when you have your family's home for sale, 
and you're relying on that sale closing. And then you've got some investor, which, you know, it's, it's, it's hard because on the investor side, everybody thinks, oh, the realtors, they don't know what I'm looking for. They don't, they don't care. They don't understand. And then on the other side, when you're a realtor working with home buyers in particular, and you say, oh, I'm sorry, the seller accepted an investor's offer. Oh, why would they pick this robot, you know, this hedge fund? And that's not always the case. A lot of times it's people like you and me that are trying to build our financial security and future in real estate. And, you know, that it's, it's hard. So there's definitely a lot of people that don't see both sides of the coin. And like you were saying, they're looking at the property from the perspective of you living there, not, you know, a long-term investment for, you know, cash flow purposes and sustainability, you know, like, is this an area that people are looking to come to, to rent, or is this a market that's way too far out that this is going to sit empty for months on end? So. Exactly. I think my very first investment property, it was my agent who convinced me to buy it because I, we had looked at so many and she like points this one out and I'm like, uh, I don't know, like, for whatever reason, I wasn't keen on it. And she was like, no, let me tell you why this is a great property to buy. And let me do a viewing and I will show it to you. And, you know, and we did a viewing and I really liked it. And we went ahead and ended up, you know, purchasing that property. But it was her who said, no, let me show you the comps. Let me talk to you about what the rent is going to be. Yeah. Oh, this is a good area for you. And so did that one work out well for you? It worked out so well. It's still working good. out. That's wonderful. I'm, I'm happy to hear that because there are a lot of very helpful agents out there that know what they're talking about and that are in it to help people not just make a sale and move on. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's super important. Like I was saying, I have such a large market here in the Atlanta area that I do not claim to be an expert on all the sub markets. And that's one thing that differs across the country. When I go to these national sales things with ERA or previously we were real living, which is a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway, and I meet agents that are in Massachusetts or New Jersey. They're like so location specific. Mm -hmm. If you like cross zip codes, they're like, no, 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 this is my territory. You make a referral. But here in Atlanta is so massive. You know, the urban sprawl is just kind of like reaching all the way from Chattanooga to Birmingham to, you know, whatever is happening over in South Carolina. And you kind of just have to roll with it, you know, when you've got a client that, you know, knows and trusts you. And I was sold as far south as Hampton, which is like 40 miles south of the city. And then I do business up in Dahlonega. And, you know, just having the skill set to know what you're looking for is the main thing, you know, um, yeah. not just looking at the same five things, not all about bedroom count and proximity to the grocery store. Of course, counter drops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's in the house doesn't matter a lot of times because you can change that for any amount of money. So switching gears, I think in 2021, we both attended DealMaker for the first time. And I was in the room because I had found Jim's Facebook group. I think I had just moved back to New York. I already had my first investment property and I wanted to learn more about being a real estate investor. And I knew that the way I would learn would be to be surrounded by people who were doing the thing that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I just casual energy of like, I don't care if I'm going to be the only one in the room. I don't care if I'm going to be the only one who like I know who looks like me. I'm just going to rock up to Virginia. And I'm going to learn something. And I felt like you had a similar attitude of like, I'm just going to show up. Yeah. You yeah. Up in those rooms, you've kind of like just grown this network. So tell them, tell me about growing your network in real estate. Like, how have you done that? 
Yeah. So I did exactly what you were describing. I went knowing people online. So through Lisa Inglehart's teeny home mastermind that she was hosting at the time, there was probably like 10 people that were regularly getting on the calls and they were all over. Some were in Kentucky, some were in Alabama, Richmond. There was one lady that was out in Oregon. So, you know, meeting them online is one thing and and sitting in a room of like 20 people. Jim Ingersoll has that with the inner circle. And and that's, that's great. But then getting in a room and seeing people in real life and having conversations with them about their business and what they do on their day to day and seeing what their life is like is a whole other ballgame. And then having the confidence to go back and talk to people again and say, oh, I met you before. How is that thing going? And then branching out to other events. And so like we were talking about meeting people at these investor network things and then kind of seeing where it is that they're going to learn from other people. I've seen you in Richmond a few times and then most recently in Tampa. And then you've done a few other things in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. I'm going on the Investor Addicts cruise that's leaving out of Cape Canaveral in a little less than a month. Meeting people on that cruise really, really changed um, a lot in my life because I was connected with Augie and Audrey Bylot, who are ambassadors for Charitable Love, which is like just an amazing, life-changing charitable organization that raises money to buy wheelchairs for people that can't afford them, and then they distribute them globally. And that is just amazing because that's like a really cool group of people that just wants to help. All the money that they raise goes directly to buying wheelchairs, which is what impressed me the most because you hear so much about charitable waste, you know, like there's certain organizations that raise all this money and then they spend it on office buildings and admins and fundraising and not actually helping people. So getting to know them on Investor Addicts in February and then traveling to Mexico with them this summer and spending a week with like 10 other like-minded investors that are also going through the same challenges we are trying to figure out, you know, what's the next deal? How do I balance, you know, my expenses, all of that. And then having those friendships grow is just like, I mean, I couldn't have dreamt of a better scenario. And then just continuing to look out for the next thing. It's hard to know because like we were talking about the other day, there's a lot of big names that are on YouTube that drive flashy cars and have these cool, like, I don't know, produced things with loud music. And that's great. That that has a place. But at the end of the day, you need to be able to sit down and talk to people and, you know, tell them your problems and be open to helping them with their problems. And we had a really awesome mastermind in Dahlonega this year at the tiny houses and at the lodge up the street from the tiny houses. It all was born out of Dealmaker. And it was a charity event to raise money for charitable love. So we had 26 women that came to Dahlonega and we did a three-day mastermind where people shared about their business, what their challenges are, what their goals are. And that was just like eye-opening and and they've just scheduled the next one for September. So just having a group of people to support you and reassure you that you're not crazy because a lot of times you're like, man, why am I doing this? I could have just been sitting there with the savings account instead of, you know, but at the end of the day, seeing that it does work out and it makes sense and seeing people in all different stages of their investor journey. I'm still very new. There's some people in the room at these events have been doing this before we, either of us were alive. So that's pretty cool. And I will say with Jim's events, I don't know how he does it. I think it is because Jim isn't of himself like a, a good person, but he just yeah. 
attracts really good people to his events. Because I've been to, you know, we've both been to events around the country where the person who's speaking, the person who's organizing is a fantastic person, but there's a mix of people in the room. And so it's not, you know, there's some wolves, there's some sharks, there's some foxes, you know, it's careful with how you move around the room and who you tell your business to. But I feel like in places like Dealmaker, that's where you meet like the Uggies of this world who are just like pure and fantastic individuals and Mm -hmm. are like teaching you and like mentoring you and helping you like learn from them so it's incredible how jim i don't know how he's done it but he really does attract good people yeah yeah i think it's kind of like the old saying like like attracts like you know and he makes it clear that you know by helping other people that helps you get to what you want to do and explaining i mean i love nothing more than talking to people that are like hey i want to start this or that in real estate that's so enjoyable for me and I know it is for you and having like an event that gets together 400 people that kind of want to do that is pretty cool I'm excited to see as the market changes kind of what people are doing it's scary and interesting at the same time you know this is an election year and I've been through presidential and gubernatorial cycles as a realtor and seen how that's kind of affected things but not as an investor yet Hmm. so this will be interesting to see if people will slow down and sit and wait because that's kind of what happens with the retail market. Um, but there's a lot of people that know, hey, there's opportunities and there's people out here that we can help with their real estate transactions that still need to sell and buy and live in places. So, you know, mm-hmm. never stops. So what is your motivation and vision? Why do you do all of this? And what is the thing you're kind of trying to accomplish with your real estate investing? Yeah, so I have kind of like, I think three components to my business. I have the realtor component, which is how I eat and I pay for my phone and my car. (laughs) And then I have the investor side, which I'm hoping in in huddle in short-term rentals, which is kind of my debut piece to this is who I am. This is my business. This is, you know, my stepping stone that will get me to doing more, but also be the foundation of potentially a long-term money-making stream that can then supplement my income and hopefully be there for a long time because I am self-employed and you know I will be investing in IRAs and things like that, but it's not like I'm my parents who have government-backed pensions and government-backed you know, benefits and healthcare and all the things that come with it. And then the flipping side is no, And that's to, you know, build up some capital and and pay right now. It's to pay down debt related to the construction because it was a massive undertaking. And um, I had to tap into a lot of personal lines of credit to finish and to get started and, you know, sustain the first year. So, you know, ultimately it's it's the motivation of any self-employed person to keep going and, you know, pay the bills. But then long-term, it's just having this freedom of, owning my own business, being able to do what I want to do most days, not every day, but most days, and being there to hopefully have enough financial security to help support my family. So my parents are doing just fine. They're both retired from federal entities. Um, My dad's retired from the FAA as an air traffic controller, and my mom's a retired teacher. But I have two cousins, and unfortunately, we lost their mother this year, and their father has a business, and they're doing extremely well right now, but I want to be there for them 100% in any way I can in the future, 
one will be 12 on Wednesday and the other one's 16 and they're brilliant and I want them to be able to do absolutely anything they want to do in life, whether that be education or starting their own businesses. We got to travel together to Europe over Christmas. And so that planted the travel bug, uh, wanderlust that I have. I love traveling and going to other countries. And then, you know, like I was talking about earlier, having like this charitable organization that I'm now able to help is also just kind of like an extra thing that gives you fulfillment and, and helping other people, which is just unbelievably special to me. So. I love that. That's amazing. Where yeah. people find you who want to connect with you? So the first place is huddletinyhomes.com. So H-U-D-D-L-E-T-I-N-Y-H-O-M-E-S.com. And then my social is at huddletinyhomes. I'm Southern, so I say homes kind of weird. And then my website is my name for my realtor page, Ali, A-L-I, crook, C-R-O-O-K.com. Full disclosure, I was born with that name. I didn't do anything to earn it. Um, <laughs> there's all kinds of theories about where it came from. My family's been in Appalachia and Detroit for hundreds of years, so who knows? But so my social there is also Allie Crook Realtor, uh, Allie Crook Realtor on Instagram. My name on Facebook is Allie Crook or Allie Crook Realtor. And I would love to connect with anybody that has any questions about tiny homes, getting started in real estate, or the Atlanta metro market. I absolutely love what I do as a realtor. And if anybody is looking for advice on, you know, property here, I can definitely help you with that. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ali. This was Thank such you. A- I appreciate it. Well, good luck. I'm, I'm excited to see who else you have on. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember to check us out on herfirsthouse.org and join the community for access to bi-monthly calls with me and everyone else in the group as well as loads of cool resources. Also, like, share this episode with two people and tell me what you liked or learned from the episode by tagging me on Instagram at Real Estate with Etty. That's Real Estate with E-T-I. We'll see you in the community and on the next episode.